Hey everybody, I am Steve Bird. And I am Matt Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi everybody, Hello. welcome back. I am Matt. Yes. This is I am uh, Steve. <laughs> we are we have already established that. We are hosting another month of Marvel Review Club. We are about to jump into the books of February 1966, a legendary month in Marvel Comics history. What? Uh, how have you been, Steve? What are you up to? Uh, well, uh, I woke up yesterday morning to find that my furnace wasn't working. Yes. Like two days after the cold weather really snapped. And uh, then we got a guy in here. He tinkered with it, but he was like, yeah, you've got some bigger stuff that needs to happen. I can get it up and running now, but it might fail any minute again. So this morning we woke up and it was again not working. So we just went ahead and committed to spending like $2,000 getting our furnace fixed. So that's tons of fun. Then at my makerspace job, we have gotten in a new giant laser that we are trying to find room for. It was originally supposed to replace the old big laser that we had to make my maintenance issues less, but then they decided to keep both of them. So now I'll have more maintenance issues, (laughs) but we'll have lots of new lasers. Okay, very exciting. I am well. We had a good Halloween. My son was Matt Olson of the Braves. My daughter was Minge from the Barbie movie, and yes, she is the pregnant (laughs) one. So we had to get my daughter a 12-year-old maternity dress, which is, you know, not at all tragic that uh, they sell them. But but it was uh, was very funny, and uh, we had a wonderful Halloween. But anyway, yes, so let's go ahead and jump to February 1966. I assume that today we're going to be doing Spider-Man, Daredevil, Journey into Mystery, featuring Thor, Tales to Astonish featuring Hulk and Namor and X-Men. We'll start with Spider-Man. Do you want to cover Spider-Man or should I? I'll let you start with Spider-Man this this uh, this week, which is okay. a big one. I'm being very magnanimous to you, so uh, I, I expect you to um, pay me back at some point in the future. Yes, this I am lucky I got to cover this. This is considered to be one of the greatest all-time Marvel comics. Amazing Spider-Man number 33, the final chapter. And legendary cover of... Spider-Man trapped under machinery with water pouring on his head, water pouring everywhere. Ditko loves water. This is, we then jump into the issue. This is the final chapter. Script and editing Stanley, plot and illustration Steve Ditko. He is back getting plot critic. Dr. Octopus, nowhere to be seen this issue. Spider-Man was in the middle of a big fight with the last issue. He was seemingly covered in the same machinery, but he has disappeared, not even to be mentioned very much in this issue. Spider-Man, still trapped under machinery, the life-giving serum he needs for his dying Aunt May is mere feet away from him, but he can't get to it because he is covered up. We then get an absolutely amazing five-page sequence of Spider-Man struggling to get out from underneath this machinery that has pinned him down, and he just can't do it uh, with water pouring down on him the whole time. And finally, on page five, he manages to struggle up and throw it off him. Now, I've always thought that page five didn't look very much like Ditko. I think maybe it's it's much time on it. It looks more like Gil Kane to me, who, I don't, spoiler alert, Gil Kane will be making his Marvel debut this month. Did you know that? I I wasn't sure if you had noticed that or not. Yes, I did. I did look up that that pseudonym uh, and I was like, Oh, um, yeah, it, it, you're right. It doesn't really look like, uh, like Ditko. And I've always thought that it looks, you know, uh, when I really didn't have much of an appreciation for Ditko, I would see this splash page and be like, oh, okay, no, this is great. Um, yeah. So I don't know if it's just that he spent a lot of time on it and was just really, you know, loving with it or yeah. If, um, I, I would really doubt he would have gotten help on a climactic moment like this. Yeah, I would doubt it too. I think it's Ditko, but I just think it's interesting that when Ditko, you know, really puts a lot of love and care into a page, it looks kind of like Kane, who will eventually take over as Spider-Man artist. After Ditko leaves, it'll be John Romita, and, but eventually it will be Kiel Kane inked by John Romita at some point in the future for some of Spider-Man's most famous storylines. So then Spider-Man finally throws the machinery off him. He, you know, so I should say he goes through all of this, all of this, you know, dark night of the soul while he's struggling against the machinery and he pictures Aunt May's floating head and Uncle Ben's floating head. Well, I should say Aunt May's floating face and Uncle Ben's floating head (laughs) has to really go through all of the turmoil he's 
ever been through in his whole life as he somehow summons up this strength. And that's what makes the sequence so great. So, Matt, you have talked about how one of the things you don't like in storytelling is when there's a problem, there's a problem, they can't solve it, they can't solve it, and then they finally just get the willpower and solve it, as opposed to figuring out a better way or changing their strategy or learning and growing and being able to do something they weren't able to do before. And this sequence really seems like the, I just need enough willpower to get it done sort of thing. Uh, How did you think about this in terms of that often stated philosophy of yours? This is Lee and Dicko show how to do it. They show how to <laughs> Dicko as Potter artist and Lee as scripter show how to really show a struggle to over to summon up the strength and summon up the willpower and how to just you know the amount of characterization that Dicko is coming into every muscle in Spider-Man's body. First of all, just the amount of weight he has put into this machinery and the water rushing down and just everything about it is just amazing. It is just an absolutely wonderful sequence. They've tried to recreate this in the MCU movies to a certain extent and haven't had much luck. They sort of had a sequence like this in the first Tom Holland Spider-Man movie, but it did not capture this feeling. Now, one of the other things about this is Ditko's panel layouts for these pages that, you know, Ditko famously tends towards that he usually has three rows of even height panels, uh, and the panels are often divided exactly in three as well. But in this case, Ditko was really using the where he did the horizontal panel breaks to increase the feeling of where Spider-Man was in his struggle here. So like on page three, the top panels, he's very small and those are very short panels. He's very compressed under here. And then each row of panels get taller and taller as he rises higher and higher with the machinery. And then he seems to sort of fall back downward on page four before finally getting, and you know, you can just see the storytelling being enhanced by some of just the technical elements of that. And that's one of the places where you really separate the good from the great. Echo breaking free of his normal borders and the interest of great storytelling. And it is considered to be one of the greatest sequences of all time. So then Spider-Man gets free. He could not look more weary on page six as he uh, <laughs> finally regains canister and is limping his way through this place. And then he gets caught up in a flood of water. He is absolutely miserable. And then here come the master planner's goons. They do not mention Dr. Octopus. He does not mention Dr. Octopus. It is strange. But he gets in a big fight with them and starts beating them up. He just sort of closes his eyes, starts swinging his arms, and starts beating the crap out of everybody as much as he can until he doesn't even realize they're all unconscious and he's still swinging away. <laughs> So then he finally makes it to Dr. Connors. They mix up the serum. He takes it to Aunt May. He then belatedly, after he's taken care of Aunt May, which only makes sense, he then belatedly realizes, oh, I should have taken some pictures of those goons I knocked out. As always in the Marvel Universe, he knows exactly how long someone will be unconscious. A hard thing to know. They call up Frederick Foswell. We get another great picture of happy J. Turner Jameson, which is always a very disturbing thing in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> upsetting. <laughs> Quite upsetting. <laughs> Quite upsetting. Uh, J. Turner Jameson says, I can hear the money rolling in now. Maybe that blasted web spinner's in jail or worse. If I'm lucky, oh, what a beautiful day this is. And Betty Brand is saying, Mr. Jameson, you're smiling. Is anything wrong? So then Spider-Man gets some pictures of himself meeting with Foswell and then of the Master Planner's goons being arrested. Brief mention of Dr. Octopus, the only time he gets mentioned in this issue. He never gets taken care of. Spider-Man then limps <laughs> back to sell some photos to JJJ. Betty sees he's been horribly beat up, that he's covered in bruises and band-aids. He says, there's no need to make a federal case out of it. Selling photos is important to me. I need the extra money. And if I have to get slapped around once in a while, it's part of the job. She totally freaks out. Now, when she freaks out, she looks like 80s Dicko on page 17. Um, (laughs) This is sort of the direction Dicko will tend, unfortunately, in the 80s of showing everybody looking like she looks when she freaks out, although it's fine here. And uh, she's like, you know, my brother got himself killed. I can't love you. You're going to get yourself killed. And she runs off, which he says is probably for the best. And then Jameson loves his photos, buys his photos. He for once negotiates a high price uh, because he's got to take care of his aunt. He goes back to his aunt. 
and then leaves her um, still unconscious, but smiling. And he, as he walks away, someone lowers Venetian blinds, which are always the sign of existential ennui in the work of Steve <laughs> Dacombe. And then we are, are told the next issue will be Craven the Hunter. So this is one of the all-time great issues. Probably should have been the finale of Dick on Spider-Man. He does five more issues after this, which are fine. They're perfectly good issues. But this is the big finale of his big four-part storyline and the certainly the pinnacle of Dicko's work on Spider-Man. Great to see him getting full pawning credit again. And great to see this issue. I was assuming that you were going to point out yet again another example of Peter Parker's terrible journalistic ethics uh, <laughs> on page 14. After, you know, getting the pictures of the goons being arrested, he says, I've got to do a little stage setting before they recover. <laughs> and uh, he's going and setting it up so that he has more dramatic photos than he normally would have. So, yes, uh, another example of the poor journalistic ethics of one Peter Parker photographer. His ethics as Spider-Man are so are so scrupulous that <laughs> it is notable. All right. Uh, no, I think that's most of what I had to say about that issue. This is, as you said, nearly universally considered the peak of the Ditko years on Spider-Man, which unfortunately means that it's a little bit of a downwards downhill slope from here, but we still get a Maybe a couple of good issues out of uh, out of the rest of it here. But yeah, good stuff. Yeah, just checking my notes to see if there's anything we didn't cover. I say, Ditko didn't pay enough for the Venetian blinds in his studio and all the work he's gotten out of them. <laughs> uh, how do you know? He may have paid plenty, but uh, yeah. Maybe, yeah he, maybe he went to Venice to get the blinds. Maybe that's why he feels the need to include them so often. These are, <laughs> these are actual Venetian blinds. That's right. I also did notice that um, and that panel where Peter is actually negotiating better prices for his pictures. JJ is thinking to himself, what's gotten into Parker? He used to be a real little milk toast who wised him up. So I think in some ways, even though Jameson, you know, makes a makes a show of being like, oh, I can't pay this. I'm all broke. I, you know, I think that this is a moment when he actually respects Pete a little bit more because he shows a little backbone. Well, and it's got to if somebody walks into your office covered in black eyed bruises that they got while taking the photos, <laughs> it's uh, you, know, you got to have some respect. You got to give it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of uh, Jimmy Stewart in uh, Rear Window. Yeah. Okay, so shall we move on to the next thing? Oh, yes. Let's do Here Comes Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, number 13. <laughs> An absolutely insane issue. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, maintaining the same level of excellence that we just had <laughs> in Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. All right. So in Daredevil, when last we left off, Daredevil was in the Savage Land. He had just lost just like, his... Well, we should say, before we jump into the story, we should say dastardly story by Stanley, demoniac layouts by Jan Kirby. Devastating artwork by John Romita, dilapidated lettering by Sam Rosen. So once again, we've got Kirby doing layouts and presumably most of the plotting. We've got John Romita finishing it up, and we've got Stanley scripting it. Once again, an interesting combination of the three men's tastes and skills here. Yes. And, you know, artistically, they really worked well together. Story-wise, uh, as you said, it's a little insane. So, so last issue, Daredevil was improbably in the savage land yes. he was knocked unconscious and had lost his superpowers uh temporarily kazar had gained some respect for him and was going to go get some juju berries from a dangerous plant that could heal him so uh but that means he has to leave daredevil alone Daredevil is lying there on some kind of fur rug in the cave while one of the, what do they call it here, Magor, last of the deadly ape man tribe, is going to presumably make mincemeat out of the helpless Daredevil. Meanwhile, Kazar is going through quite an ordeal with a man-eating plant to get these healing berries. Beats his chest like Tarzan when he uh, sets the thing on fire. The Plunderer, who is the villain previous issue, who is still the villain this issue, a pirate-themed villain with pirate-themed henchmen, he is very abusive to his henchmen in this particular case, and some of them start feeling a little bit mutinous. So uh, that will pay off a little bit later. Daredevil, meanwhile, is thinking he's about to lose the fight with Magor, uh, and he's like, well, this is the wrap-up, but I'll go down fighting, thinking that he's about to die. But then the plunderer comes in, 
runs off Magor, the last of the ape men, uh, and rescues Daredevil once again because, as we said last issue, he has some respect for him and wants to have him join him as a partner. We get a little soap opera at the Nelson and Murdoch offices between Foggy Nelson and Karen Page, which I will more or less skip over. So yeah, Kazar returns to the cave or is trying to return to the cave with the juju berries, but then the plunderer pulls this piece of metal out, this little broken medallion, and holds it up for Kazar to see. Now this is, although it's not called this yet, and it's this uh, isn't brought up yet, this is the very first appearance in the Marvel Universe of Vibranium. Uh, yes. They will retroactively declare this to be vibranium. When vibranium yeah, I was reading this issue, and I'm like, this sounds a lot like vibranium. And then I looked it up on Wikipedia, and according to Wikipedia, this is considered to be the first appearance of vibranium. Right, and there, there are two, I think they call them isotopes, which wouldn't really make sense, but two different types of vibranium. This is the Antarctic version, and then there's the Wakandan version. They have different characteristics to them. So the plunderer holds up this broken medallion made of vibranium, Kazar is like, oh, wait. And then he reaches into a pocket that he's got <laughs> yes. in these, and they in what they call is a loincloth, but it's not a loincloth. It's like a little fur bikini briefs that he's wearing <laughs> that apparently has pockets. This is why life is so unfair to women. When women wear bikini briefs, they don't get pockets, but men, of course, are given pockets in their bikini briefs. It is so unfair. <laughs> women, it if really women is. had pockets in their bikini briefs, they would be those little fake pockets that you can't actually put your hands into. <laughs> yes, just just for looks. We find out that Kazar is the plunderer's brother. Uh, somehow, Kazar got abandoned in the Savage Land when he was very young, and so that's why he acts like a savage. Um, and it's already been established that the plunderer is descended from British nobility, so that means that Kazar, just like Tarzan, Tarzan was also a descendant from British nobility. And that was like the whole idea of Tarzan for Edgar Rice Burroughs was that he wanted to show that British nobility were naturally superior to everyone else in the world, even though he himself was not British. And he wanted to show that if you were to take one of them and plop them in the jungle with no resources, they would still naturally dominate and naturally be able to handle themselves better than anyone who was born there. That is the horribly racist origin of Tarzan. <laughs> and, uh, turns out Kesar is even more of a Tarzan knockoff than he seemed to be in his first appearance in X-Men. <laughs> so they're able to cage Kazar and then get him on their ship, which also doubles as a submarine. And they somehow are very quickly able to make the trip from Antarctica back to Britain. So it's interesting. In the words, it just says, minutes later, the strange intersea crab strikes a course due north, implying that you just have to head north from the Savage Land to get to England, implying that the Savage Land is above ground in Antarctica, as it would be shown in our youth in the 80s. But the art is showing him going through a long tunnel, which is more in keeping with how the Savage Land was shown at the time as being a place that was inside the earth, possibly in a interior cavity inside the earth with an, its own sun. And still very unclear, still very unclear, which is true. I mean, I, I, I just saw that as the tunnel going out from the Savage Land to the regular uh, ocean is a northward facing tunnel from there, yes. you know, or it could just be, you know, after they get out of the tunnel, they strike a course due north. So they get back to the baronial manor or whatever it would be for the plunders. And uh, he's got a whole army of butlers and manservants who are then brought in to uh, serve a feast for his motley crew of cosplay pirates. And they're all treating the help very rudely. Turns out Plunder has drugged all of his underlings here so he can talk to Daredevil. We find that Kazar is actually being held in a pit. Daredevil has re completely recovered his powers at this point. He ends up getting into a fight with Kazar at the bottom of the pit. This is utterly bizarre. So the Plunderer willingly gave Kazar his half of the medallion in the Savage Land and said, look, I have this half of the medallion. You have the other half of the medallion in your pocket. And, you know, they go together and that proves we're brothers. Fine. And now the Plunderer then took Kazar hostage. Kazar presumably has to sleep sometime. And Kazar is now at the bottom of a pit, completely in the power of the Plunderer. And then D the Plunderer says, Daredevil, you like Kazar. You don't like me, but I'm going to send you down to go beat up Kazar to get the medallion back from Kazar. 
Now you've got Kazar. Kazar is totally within your power. You should be able to get this medallion off him at any time. He has to sleep sometime. Just get it off of him. He's stuck in your pit. Why do you need to send Daredevil down to beat up Kazar and get this medallion? And indeed, as soon as Daredevil is down there, he's like, I'm going to pretend to beat up Kazar and actually jump out of the pit and beat up the Thunderer, which is exactly what you would expect to happen. The whole thing is utterly bizarre. Yeah, it is. Let's just go ahead and accept that as a given and uh, move along here. So Daredevil helps Kazar up out of the pit. We then find out that the first mate, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, uh, has decided to actually betray the plunderer. But he is beaten to it by Feepers, who is one of the servants in the castle, who is also wanting to betray the plunderer who treats him and his fellow servants so badly. Feepers kills the pirate who is called Slag, and Slag, of course, has a parrot, as all good pirates do, who now, the poor parrot, is just, you know, can't accept Slag's death and is just hovering over him, you know, looking very worried. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) this is uh, the only person in this whole book I have any sympathy for is that poor parrot. (laughs) So Kazar jumps out of a multi-story high window in the castle in his nearly naked state. So, you know, that's, not good (laughs) you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of cuts you're gonna you know slam your head against things that's not a good thing and then daredevil jumps out after him in a panel where it really looks like he's flying yeah well uh next thing you know it turns out feepers is actually and some kind of agent of some what international espionage network so i mean i guess something like specter or something like that so he sends out a notice to all of these agents around the world uh and one of them ends up showing up in england uh the plunderer meanwhile has found his uh dead flunky and decides to call it into the police because i mean He's a respected nobleman, so uh, the police will listen to him, and he's like, oh, yes, this uh, Daredevil character just came and murdered this man, and uh, uh, and my, my servant, too. Uh, you need to come here and do something. So they're like, oh, okay, here we go. One of the agents that was called by Feepers shoots some sort of projectile at the escaping Daredevil and Kazar, and it blows up uh, right near them, and that is the last we see of them in the issue. So, as you said, rather bizarre. (laughs) Is it the next issue where the plunderer remains here and ends up getting his white and blue costume? You recall, I've never read these issues. I never read Ah, it. So when we read these things, this is the only book that I'm reading for the first time is Daredevil. Because I just don't like Daredevil. And when I read all of the Marvel comics twice before, I skipped Daredevil both times. So I have no idea what's going to happen next. And oh boy, do I not have any idea what's going to happen next. Because this story (laughs) is crazy. Yes. Uh, So a couple of little funny things that I noticed. Uh, There's one point when uh, Kazar is being fired at by Feepers. And um, the caption says, And as the jungle lord darts and dodges like a rage-filled tiger which is okay. The medallion, the medallion within his waist pouch begins to vibrate with ever increasing force. And you see a bunch of vibration coming out of his bathing suit, (laughs) (laughs) which I found amusing because, you know, I I've never really progressed that far beyond middle school. Yes. That's all I've got to say about this one. Yes. So the last thing I will add is that at one point they go like, he's a 20th century pirate. And I read that. And then I was like, Oh, right. 20th century didn't used to be an old, (laughs) (laughs) when i host bar trivia i'm always apologizing for my 20th century thinking to my kids most of whom were born in the 21st century northwestern students who attend my bar trivia and i'm just so used to using 20th century as the synonym for old and i'm like oh right when that's important 20th century meant new yes he was a modern pirate all right it is back to you I, i i volley back to you now Indeed. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump into Journey into Mystery number 125. The final Journey into Mystery, by the way. Yes, it's just going to be called Thor from this point on. So I gotta say, we have Thor meeting a big shadow that, of course, Koeta can't be bothered. Well, I can't, shouldn't say can't be bothered. Koeta does a lot more work than he ought to. He should just be painting in the shadow with a brush, and instead he is etching it in with a pen with thousands of little lines. But I gotta say, this cover... Just in terms of, obviously, it's horribly into my clutter, but in terms of Kirby, this is a really lazy cover. Yeah. First of all, it could be the cover of just about any issue of Thor, like Thor on a 
you know, sort of Dali-esque plane um, <laughs> preparing to attack the shadow of somebody. It's only the item in his hand that looks... Uh, oh, I guess this is Hercules. I, I yeah. thought this was the demon. I guess that's Hercules, because that's Hercules' little mace. Anyway, I'm not a big fan of this cover. We then go ahead and jump into the issue, and I do like the inking inside the issue pretty well. Pompastically written by Stan Lee, brilliantly drawn by Chuck Kirby, beautifully inked by Vince Glotta, actually ordered by Artie Savick. I think that this splash page, you actually get some thick inking of blacks, and the splash page of Thor fighting the demon, the strange witch doctor of Mongolia with a Nornstone <laughs> that he's been fighting, uh, is actually fairly well inked, as is the rest of the battle. We then get an excellent five-page or so battle between Thor and the demon. I absolutely love on the top of page three, we get Thor breaking up a boulder that has been shot at him, and we have a panel that is beautifully inked by Koda of Thor smashing the boulder and all the pieces are coming flying towards us and the room is breaking the edge of the panel barrier. It is really quite nicely done. Meanwhile, so last issue, Thor was fighting the demon in Mongolia. We then cut to Odin, who has found out that Thor had told Jane who he really was and said, I'm going to do something about it. Then cut to Zeus telling Hercules, you need to do something in the mortal world. And I'm like, okay, I assume that Odin called Zeus and said, you need to send your son Hercules to come humble my son Thor. But no, Hercules has been sent to Earth for some reason, but he is just sleeping in a grassy field somewhere in America. (laughs) And uh, I don't know what he was sent here for, but presumably not that. But then he wakes up and sees that there is a train that has been held up by a huge tree that has fallen across the tracks. And Hercules then comes and deals with the tree. Nice Kirby panel, at least, of big smiling Hercules on the bottom of page five. Coletta, of course, can't make the eyes match, but... It's still a nice panel. We then cut back to Thor, who finally... So this is a big thing, starting in this month of Marvel Comics, is you get a lot of storylines wrapping up in the middle of the issue, and then a new storyline starting before the end of the issue. This has sort of officially become Stanley's thing at this point, to the degree that we want to give Stan credit for the plotting on these books. And I don't like it. I don't like how we are now... Wrapping up storylines this month in Thor, we wrap up the storyline halfway through and then begin a new one in this month's Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. We wrap up the storyline halfway through and get a new one. And of course, famously, in the next issue of Fantastic Four, next month's Fantastic Four, we will wrap up the Inhuman storyline halfway through and then begin the Silver Surfer Galactus storyline mid-issue. I don't like it. And then the Galactus storyline is going to wrap up two issues later, also mid-issue. And... Anyway, so he reclaims the Norn Stone, deals with all that, goes home to Odin, hands it over. Odin's like, that's great, but you're under arrest because you told Jane who you are. And we get, again, shockingly good inks, beautiful art on page nine of Thor fighting every warrior in Asgard who are trying to drag him down. Meanwhile, Hercules has made friends on the train that he saved, and now he is entertaining in a restaurant. He is playing a guitar. And then... Goons come in to rob the place wearing handkerchiefs over their face. Now, I don't know about you, but every time during COVID that I had to go into a bank wearing a face mask, I was afraid I was going to get shot. I was like, (laughs) if there's one thing I have been taught in my life, it is do not wear a face mask when you enter a bank. And and yet it was COVID and the bank required you to wear face masks. And every time I was there, I was desperately looking around for any sort of armed guards and wanting to reassure them like, no, 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 there's a, there's a pandemic going on. That's why I'm wearing a mask into a bank. But uh, sure enough, at the time there was no pandemic and it was odd to enter a restaurant uh, with face masks on and guns brandished. Hercules then beats crap at him. There is Gorgeous art on page 12 of one of them is getting away in a getaway car, and he rips a lamppost off of its base and throws it through the bottom of the car in a way that would be kind of silly if Kirby didn't draw the hell out of it and really (laughs) makes it look like this. it would work to throw a lamppost through the bottom of a car and rip the wheels off of it. That is just something that I would think that there would be no possible way to make that work visually. Right. That, you know, the the car is getting away. You throw a projectile at the back of the car. It hits the bottom of the car with so much force that essentially the transmission is pushed out forward from under the rest of the car. Uh, And it's just like, you can't draw that. That's that's not going to make any visual sense. And you can draw anything. And yet here we are. (laughs) 
He is an amazing artist. So then, so at this point, Hercules has an Hollywood agent who is taking him to become a big Hollywood star. But Jane Foster, who has terrible eyesight, is saying it's hard to see clearly from this height. And you have to that large, powerful figure in the center of a crowd, so muscular, so broad-shouldered. It can only be Thor. So she can see his muscles, but she can't see his hair color or hair length or anything like that. Don't, um, don't take her to Muscle Beach. <laughs> don't take her. She'll be blinded by all the muscles <laughs> on Muscle Beach. So then she goes down to Hercules and gets there and is like, well, this isn't Thor, but he's good enough. And she is like, Let's, uh, let me go off with this guy. And uh, the agent's like, wait, we're supposed to go out to Hollywood. And Hercules stuffs him in a garbage can and says, no, I'm going to have Jane Foster instead. Thor manages to fight its way out of Asgard, goes down to find Jane Foster. She is like, I thought you left me, but again, you left without a word of explanation. Well, I'm through being left behind, wondering, never knowing when or if you'll return. And she's like, nope, I'm with Hercules now, basically. Someone who's going to make a much more stable and uh, <laughs> healthy relationship you know, than with Thor. It's not like he ever killed his family or anything like that. Um, <laughs> yes, not, not maybe the best new stable man to have in your life. But then Thor and Hercules get ready to battle. Once again, the cover promising too much. Uh, the cover last time promised a lot of Hercules when we got very little Hercules. And the cover this time promised or battling Hercules, but that doesn't actually start until next issue. But this is an absolutely crazy issue, shockingly well linked by Kalena. He seems to be taking his time. And I love Thor versus the Demon. I love Thor versus the Hordes of Asgard. I love Thor versus Hercules. I love everything about it. It's a great issue. Well, except the whole thing of ending a storyline in the middle and beginning a new storyline in the middle. Yeah, I don't like that so much, but I'm more than willing to forgive it because it's wonderful. Well, and I, I'm guessing that's probably more Kirby because, you know, Ditko isn't really doing that. Yeah, you're right. And I don't think Heck is either. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's probably a Kirby thing. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I was trying to figure out where in the country Hercules was napping with the tree that falls across the train tracks is said to be a sequoia. And yet, in some shots, the whole background looks like it is in the, not desert southwest, but, you know, somewhere out west that's pretty arid. Uh, but then there are other angles where it looks like there's some scrub brush and stuff like that. But it does not look like a sequoia forest. So, no. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. Um, and, and, you know, obviously. Sequoia growing in the southwest desert or something like yes, that. Yes, yes. Um, at one point, Thor swipes. Spider-Man's sound effect, although I don't think it's really become Spider-Man's sound effect yet. When Mjolnir returns to Thor's hand at one point, the sound effect is thwip. Yes. Yes. Or maybe maybe Spider-Man ends up stealing it from him, perhaps. Who knows? And uh, Jane, when she meets Hercules, uh, is thinking, everything about him reminds me of Thor, and yet he he's so very different but again her eyes look like she is really really drugged out on something (laughs) which is probably a coletta thing (laughs) and jane actually is quite is quite catty with thor here hercules is basically at a soda shop with her and he's like ah this liquid is like nectar of the gods thor comes in jane i've returned jane says really I forgot you had been away. <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, yeah, we get it. Anyway, that's uh, that's all I had for this. Yes, I often love Hercules, and I love Hercules' appearances in these Thor stories. It was a lot of fun. There were some ups and downs, but I'm looking forward to more Thor versus Hercules. Yes, my final note for this issue was, fight could not be more contrived. So, yes, I uh, <laughs> have a, a rather contrived reason to fight over Jane. But, uh, yes, so then... We then quickly get Tales of Asgard in the back. Um, excellent splash page, not linked by Clutter, but beautifully drawn by Kirby. It says, none but Marvel's Stanley could tell such a tale. None but Marvel's Jack Kirby could draw such a tale. None but Marvel's Vince Coletta could ink such a tale. None but Marvel's Artie Simak could be such a pussycat. Everybody is reacting to the swarm of flying trolls from last issue, and everybody is being very brave about it, even Loki, except for Volstagg, who is freaking the hell out <laughs> on this first page. And uh, as would I in that situation, I am Valsag. Valsag is me as uh, these (laughs) swarm of insectoid trolls are attacking the ship. Everyone is fighting them, but seemingly trying not to kill them very much, except for Loki, who luckily has a big chemical weapons cannon (laughs) built into the ship, just in case he ever needed it, and shoots chemical weapons at the trolls. 
and Zen breaks smug about the fact he defeated the trolls, but then the trolls come and they have sort of bizarre grappling devices to kidnap Loki to hold him accountable for this and drag him back to their queen. And that is where the issue ends. An excellent issue, an excellent Tales of Asgard story, all worth it for Volstagg freaked out face on the first page. <laughs> I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, so I noticed that basically what Loki is doing here, he's fumigating. Right. These are these are like bug like trolls. And he is setting off like a flea bomb (laughs) is taking care of all of them. Sure. Why not? But, you know, Loki is saying as he is doing this to uh, some of his lackeys, more potions, more. The deed is almost done. So he had apparently brought chemical weapon potions with him on this trip. Not a red flag in any way whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah, but tons of fun and looks great. And that's it. Once again, slow moving story, but each little part is fun. Yes. All right. So Submariner and the Hulk in Tales to Astonish. The cover is all Submariner. We only see Hulk in the corner box. This uh, tale is Uneasy Hangs the Head, Story Stanley penciling Adam Austin, again, Gene Colan, delineation Vince Coletta, lettering Sam Rosen. Nobleman all. So at the end of last issue, Submariner had shown back up in Krang's, well, had shown back up in the palace, basically brushed by Krang as he took Dorma to this super healing chamber thingy and he put her down on it. But now he apparently forgets all about her. He's gotten her to it. And then he's like, oh, now I'm going to go beat up Krang. (laughs) And after a while, he's like, oh, my God, I forgot Lady Dorma. (laughs) And Summoner had spent six issues, six or seven issues trying to get this trident that he wanted to confront Kang with. And then last issue, the old man who was helping him had thrown him the trident and said, here, stop Kang with this. Well, the trident, nowhere to be seen now. He is uh, just going to beat up Krang with his bare hands. Trident is does not make another appearance in the scene, although he is does have it in his hand when he is back in charge of Atlantis. Spoiler alert, later in the yeah. issue. Uh, funny, I, I had not thought of the trident as being a weapon he would use, but more like a symbol of his rightful kingship. Sure. So he goes back and turns on this machinery, which looks suspiciously like parts that you could buy at Radio Shack that are being used at the bottom of the ocean in salt water. But okay, sure, why not? And he's able to use this Revivo Ray of some sort to uh, bring Dorma back to life. We then see a big parade on page six, once again, bringing to mind the whole question of can Atlanteans swim or not? Uh, This would seem to indicate they don't. Also, their hair and their uh, drape and their like capes and dresses all behave the way they would in the air uh however (laughs) (laughs) however we do have like manta rays and stuff like that in the foreground so it's clear it's made clear they're underwater but it's just everything seems like it's in the air i like this page a lot this uh full page procession of uh people waving banners as they and throwing flowers in the air to celebrate (laughs) namor you know and then we have it's not the only full page splash i guess this is one of Three full-page splashes we get this issue. I like it a lot. I think it's genuine colon value being conveyed to us. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, the flowers that woman is throwing is like sea anemones or something? Like <laughs> yes, that? something like that. <laughs> so the newly rethroned Namor is then going to receive his people and allow them to greet him in person. And he says the very first one will be Dorma because he so decrees and he wants to see her first. Uh, we get the next splash page that you were talking about, which eh, doesn't look quite as nice. Uh, this is where yeah. we see we see Samariner on his throne with that lame looking trident that he's got that's supposedly a big deal um and everything else is kind of in shadow the sea creatures that are behind him are a little bit hard to make out granted some of that is undoubtedly coletta as the inker you know that's one of your jobs to try and take stuff and make it make visual sense if it doesn't already and he did not do so namor does not propose to uh dorma but he does ask for her to sit beside him as though she were queen for the rest of this ceremony and then he bestows noble noblemanship noblehood nobility nobility He, he bestows nobility upon the old guy who finally gets a name here vashti the elder 
Uh, and so he is celebrated for his work. Krang is thrown into a prison and then is brought out for his sentence um, in front of all these people who are here for the audience with Namor, and Namor just banishes him, and Krang's like, the fool, he shows too much mercy, and now I will be able to get back at him. But before any of that can happen, there's a massive earthquake, and it looks like people are very, like, people are hurt and killed all through Atlantis, but... Submariner is sure that this is actually nuclear bomb testing because that has happened in the past and he must go to the surface world to confront that. Yes, it's an OK issue. It's, uh, you know, this has been a sort of up and down storyline, certainly better than some of the issues that we've had uh, along here. That being said, this really focusing hard on the whole royalty thing and you know he is the rightful ruler that has now been restored to the throne you know i believe in republican government (laughs) (laughs) i am never that i'm like okay you know that so yes at one point on that big first splash page yay freedom has once again cast its golden glow over the watery realm it's like you're still subject to an autocrat it's just an autocrat you like as opposed to an autocrat you don't like (laughs) as someone who definitely believes in democratic republican government i'm put off by that uh at one point they talk and i love the names that they come up with for uh special weapons in the stanley marvel universe at one point uh in one of the battles between samara and krang Explosive ray gunners are called to fire at will. So, uh, explosive rays. Um, that's uh, that's fun. I like explosive rays. Um, that's better than you know using something something like skateboards. You know, I, yes. I, I want things like explosive rays. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty much it. Like I said, it's a it's a decent climax to this long longish storyline. But you know, as I said, I'm never a huge fan of uh, Submariner when he's in his own book as the protagonist. Nope, nope. Yeah, a merely okay issue. Some you know, uh, Cohen getting to luxuriously enjoy himself with three splash pages, but. Um, you know, my God, and seeing Jack Abel and King Colin on the Iron Man strip now just oh, yeah. makes me all the more upset about how terrible <laughs> Colin's things are on this book. And it's been, you know, we've it's been unrelenting. We've had at this point whatever eight issues or so of this book, and um, Colin is inked every single one, and it's just been unbearably bad. He cannot leave quickly enough. Even for defenders of Coletta, for one reason or another, I don't think anyone could defend this combination. I mean, putting Coletta on colon, it's just, even if you liked both artists, it would just be like, eh, what? (laughs) It's like, I like, you know, what, you know, someone might be, I like peanut butter and I like lobster, but I don't want to put them together. Uh, Actually, I'm not the biggest fan of peanut butter or lobster, come to think of it. So those are weird examples for me. (laughs) All right. So uh, shall we move on to the Hulk? Yes, let's move on to the Hulk. Okay, so I Against the World, living proof that teamwork pays off. Script Stan Lee, layout Jack Kirby, penciling Scott Edward. Hmm, who's this Scott Edward fellow? Uh, first time I read through these, I don't think I bothered to look it up. I was like, oh, okay, Scott Edward. Uh, this time I did look it up, and this is Mr. Gil Kane, who will become arguably the most influential artist of Marvel's Bronze Age. I don't know about influential, but important. Their biggest covers, a cover artist, certainly. Yes, um, he will be and, their top cover artist of the 1970s. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Once Kirby leaves, who had been their go-to cover artist, Gil Kane will become that cover artist. Now, yes. we really, I don't know about you, but I see zero Gil Kane influence on this art. So I looked it up after I read this issue. I then belatedly went back and looked it up. Very hard to find any information on Scott Edward, but according to the Hulk's Wikipedia page, it said Scott Edwards, with an S, uh, was secretly Gil Kane. And I'm seeing almost no Gil Kane. You didn't mention that Mickey DeMeo was doing the inks. So with the last couple of issues, we have layouts by Kirby, inking by Mickey DeMeo, with this finished penciler sandwich between. And I would not have guessed in a million years it was Gil Kane. No. Now that I know, I can sort of see like the the sights on the guns on page one sort of look like Gil Kane. The 
you know, I'm stretching here. Obviously, <laughs> yes, I was I about can. to say that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> well, I mean, one of, one of the things that's most distinctive about Kane is his positioning of figures and his angles that he chooses. So you're yes. always getting, you know, looking down at a face or looking up their nose. Uh, you know, there are, you know, sort of the way that he does the anatomy as people are kicking or being thrown about or whatever is so distinctive and acting as a penciler in between layouts and inking by two other artists really all that cane uh influence whether you're a cane fan or not i do like cane stuff uh but all that cane goodness just is completely obliterated in my mind by those two uh by those two artists sandwiching him in yeah mickey DeBayo continues to do very smushy inking he just more so than on his other books he just thinks of the hulk as being a smushy character and kirby is doing his standard excellent job but yeah with you realize just how much Kane's work is based on his his layouts and Kane without Kane layouts just doesn't look like Kane it was a shocker uh yeah. and we're about to get some very Kaney Kane work uh, when he <laughs> takes over Captain America in a couple months uh I think he's going to be penciling and inking himself you know doing his own layouts doing his own penciling doing his own inking and it is going to be miles different from this book I thought he was going to take over Hulk first before that does he not I don't know. He doesn't last long on either book, but he has short runs on both Captain America and Hulk coming up in the next year. Okay. Uh, I look forward to that. Anyway, so the end of the credits just says, no wonder it's another Marvel masterwork. The Hulk is in the future because the T-gun was fired at him in the previous issue. T apparently stood for time, but none of the people in the military who had assembled this weapon from Banner's plans had any clue what it would do. So they decided to use it for the very first time on the lawn of the White House because uh, <laughs> yes. there's no way that could go wrong. <laughs> but they used it on the Hulk and seemed to have obliterated him. But what they actually did was fling him into the far future. So there is, I'm sure you uh, appreciate this, Matt, a future army who is fighting the Hulk here with all of their futuristic weapons. Yes, I always love when heroes fight futuristic armies with futuristic weapons, and this is wonderful. Um, great, you know, much more Kirby than Kane, uh, great Kirby futuristic armies fighting the Hulk. One of the weapons they have that's finally able to subdue the Hulk is a concentrated gravity ray that they fire on him, which actually does make me think of the David Brin novel Earth, where they are actually doing scientific stuff with gravity waves that does all sorts of neat stuff. So I'm like, oh, okay, you know what? This is close enough to something that a reputable hard science science fiction guy has dealt with that I will allow it. Yes. <laughs> so, and then Stan Lee actually acknowledges for once how odd his switching back and forth from one century to another is here on the bottom of page four. It says, one of the paradoxes of time is the fact that past, present, and future exist simultaneously. Thus, even as the Hulk is encircled, if we were to turn many hundreds of years into the past, we would find on the White House lawn. So I think he started to realize how silly some of his, like, you know, at that moment in the 20th century. Uh, anyway, they're searching for any sign of the Hulk. And they're like, well, there isn't a crater, so it didn't destroy anything else. So he must be here somewhere or some parts of him, but they can't find it. And General Thunderbolt Ross is in trouble with, is that one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think? General, sorry. Yeah, some, that, that somebody, was, yeah. he's, he's a pretty high-ranking dude, but he's got a boss here who is yelling at him. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I know uh, Thunderbolt Ross isn't a five-star general. I think he's like somewhere around a two- or three-star general. Looks like three. I'm zooming in here and it looks like three. So, yes, a four or five star general comes in and basically says, if you don't find the Hulk, you're going to be in big, big trouble. The Hulk, however, is thousands of years in the future. He is taken to this big fortress while he is subdued by this gravity weapon. Stanley has gotten over his squeamishness now and he does say, meanwhile, in the grim, ominous, war-turned world of the far future. So he's back saying, meanwhile, without any acknowledgement of that 
being in the meeting with yeah. him. And meanwhile, I can get, I can, I can allow better than. I mean, I think a few issues ago with Kang, they were saying like at that instant in the 20th century, and I'm like, that's not how these things work. What are you doing? Uh, so anyway, the Hulk has recovered from his gravity ray and is in his prison cell. The future army folks and the leader of this future army uh, think that they can have him under control with their numbers and their weapons, but obviously they can't. They, meanwhile, are all really scared of some other warlord that's out there. We get the feeling that this is an area under siege that's worried about someone else, which will pay off in the last panel. So the Hulk escapes from here, and then what we see on the last page, we see a bunch of tripod robot looking thingies heading across the landscape they look very much like the novel descriptions of the of the martians in war of the worlds uh yes. in the movie they turned them into like flying saucer looking things but um this looks like the description in the novel uh so the hulk goes out to fight these things lands on top of one of them and the hatch opens up and out pops the executioner <laughs> a shocking twist yes uh, and and not the communist dictator the executioner this is no. scourge the executioner so you know you're like well i guess the gods are immortal he might still be around thousands of years from now but yes a uh, quite a shocking twist i found and and i i like it he even says silence you brainless fossil no one gives orders to the immortal executioner and i like this implication that it's like this is just the executioner a thousand years in the future still kicking ass but no they will later make it clear that this is the executioner from our time who has gone to the future to kick ass but yeah this is a shocking twist but the hulk has been excelling at shocking twists recently it has been one damn thing after another it's been an exciting strange <laughs> weird book and i love having the executioner show up here at the end you know with world of the world's tripods under his control why not sure yeah, let's do it. One of the weapons that the future army has is referred to as an a high-intensity paralyzer howitzer. And somehow the word howitzer really jumps out at me. You know, it's like, yeah. it's one thing to be like, it's a cannon, it's a bazooka. Okay, those are just the English words for those. Howitzer, I'm pretty sure, was named after the inventor of the howitzer, I'm guessing. Yes. And it's like, well, I guess this is in the future. Maybe they just still refer to it as a howitzer. But they also refer to uh, the Hulk as an aborigine. If anything can stop that aborigine, this high-intensity paralyzer howitzer will do it. And I mean, I guess aborigine, originally before it became uh, specifically associated with the indigenous people of Australia, where the word came from, I guess, is that essentially you are part of the original people. And so that's where the origin in there comes from. And so anyone who's like of an ancient people would be aborigines. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I just <laughs> that word jumped out at me as well. Anyway, that's all I've got on that one. It's uh, yes. it's, it's fun. I, I'm, I'm liking this storyline. I say in my notes, I end with great issue. Is it Lake Kane? Question mark, question mark. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to believe Wikipedia that this is Gil Kane and he's just barely showing up. Barely, barely, barely showing up. Caught between a Kirby and tomato sandwich and uh, barely, <laughs> barely making any uh, impact on his first Marvel story. But Caught between a is, Kirby and a tomato place? Yes, but it is great to have him here, and the art looks great on this issue. It just doesn't look like Kane, but, uh, but I'm going to give him some of the credit, and it is a wonderful issue. All okay. right, so let's move on to X-Men. Let's go ahead and do X-Men number 17. So I should, we should once again say that Marvel is now doing nine bucks a month instead of eight. And so we used to do four issues in every episode of this podcast, but now we have to do five issues in every other episode. And we've gone back and forth as to how we're doing it, but now we are playing around with doing five for the first half of every month. So we will go ahead and do X-Men number 17. I like this cover a lot. We have the X-Men are looking completely beat up in their headquarters while someone is standing over them, casting a shadow on them. And it is a very daringly colored cover, which you don't get to say a lot in Marvel Comics. It is all red except for white highlights on the characters. And uh, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's very striking. It's a very striking cover. And none shall survive. You must not reveal the incredible ending to any living soul. Remember, we'll be watching you. 
Well, if you know X-Men history, you know if there's a shocking thing that is going to happen on the last page, it is always the same thing that happens <laughs> when there is a shocking thing on the last page of the X-Men. And indeed, this is the first time that it happens, but certainly not the last. So then we go ahead and jump into the issue. We have a nice, busy splash page of all of the X-Men still getting medical treatment from when they fought the Sentinels last issue. And uh, there's a bunch of swarming people. It is absolutely ridiculous that Professor X is still claiming he has no idea who these X-Men are. He has no connection to them. Marvel Girl is thinking, I wonder how much longer the professor can keep his connection with us a secret. And uh, right? Professor X <laughs> is indeed going like, perhaps one of these so-called X-Men will be good enough to drive me back to my school. He doesn't actually say one of these so-called, but he basically says that, pretending he doesn't know who they are. And he even thinks to himself, he thinks of me as a civilian advisor. After all, there's no reason for anyone to suspect I'm the leader of the X-Men. Yes, there is every reason. And indeed, we will get to a big reason in a couple of pages. He takes all of these kids who he has no idea who they are back to the hospital and is taking care of all of them in the hospital. He, we then get a panel that very much, sometimes we get no prize book panels. And I'm like, I don't know if that belonged in the no prize book. Here's a panel that very much belonged in the no prize book and did indeed make it in. With Heavy Heart, Charles Xavier next visits Hank McCoy, and the Beast is getting uh, foot x-rays, and he is talking to him, but he's also thinking at him, and he is thinking telepathically, remember, Hank, do not, under any circumstance, remove your mask. And another word of caution, act as though I am merely a casual friend. No one must suspect I am actually your leader. Then he says out loud, no, McCoy. So he has just said, don't take off your mask. You can't possibly know who you are. And then he calls him by his last name out loud. They have actually fixed that on the digital version. He Ah. says, no, beast. Interesting. (laughs) Once something has made it into the Marvel No Prize book, you cannot fix it. It is too late to fix it. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And I, I would not have noticed it before now. But now that you say that, looking at it, I'm like, that font is slightly different on that, but it's close enough that I never would have noticed if you hadn't pointed that out. Okay, yes. interesting. So Angel is then flying around talking on the phone, which of course was harder to do back when phones were wired. His parents are coming to visit, do a surprise pop-in at the school, which is of course no good. He flies home to meet them, but then metal things start flying around the school and attacking him. Who? Can what can possibly be causing metal things to fly around the school and attack the students? Who knows? And one by one, everybody in the school makes it home and is one by one attacked by metal things in the school and various other high-tech things to stop them. That takes up the rest of the issue, and they are all defeated. Finally, you get to the dumbest thing about this issue. It's always dumb in all genre fiction of all time when the villain completely defeats the heroes and then puts them in a death trap instead of just killing them in any one of any logical ways. Here we get this mysterious person who then decides, I have now defeated all the X-Men except for Iceman, who is still in the hospital, and I'm going to put them in a hot air balloon locked inside a steel gondola attached to a hot air balloon or a, I guess, a helium balloon, and then send them out to the edge of space. You'll orbit the edge of space, helpless, out of control, until your small supply of air gives out. And that will be the end of the X-Men forever, which is a really dumb way to kill somebody. And then the Worthingtons stop by, and he, they go, you must be parents of a student. They go, but who are you? He says, I, I am power. Men call me Magneto or Magneto. So this is the first of many, many X-Men issues that will suddenly end on a final splash page revealing that Magneto did not die when you thought he died and he is back to life and attacking the X-Men. That is our cliffhanger and unfortunately that is the end of Jack Kirby on this book. This is his final issue. He has done a wonderful job shepherding the X-Men through 17 issues and he has gone there will be now no more good art on the X-Men for many years. Uh, We'll just get two brief issues of Steranko at some point And then finally, X-Men will go back to being a great book with issue 56. So I should say Lee is going to not last much longer in this book either. He is going to leave and Roy Thomas is going to take over. Roy Thomas is even more artist dependent than Lee is and is not going to do a very good job on the book until suddenly he gets great artist and becomes great writer when Roy Thomas writing and Neil Adams art take over in issue 56. 
this will become a great book again, but it is going to be a long wait to get to that point. But this is the end of Jack Kirby, who has poured a lot of love into this book for the last 17 issues. And as I'd said earlier on in this podcast, I was sort of surprised to be reminded that Jack Kirby stayed on the X-Men this long. You know, he had long since left the Avengers. But yeah, he stayed on the X-Men for 17 whole issues. So we will say a bittersweet goodbye to him here as he uh, heads on to other things. Uh, Yeah, so a few things I noted. Um, One thing, just the angel flying around in the hospital to keep out of, so that the nurses couldn't see what phone number he called to get the X-Men's answering machine (laughs) so that he could see what messages had been left. Uh, But, you know, flying in, you know, a regular height hospital corridor, it's just I'm like, yes. wow, that's yeah. Uh, but then also, uh, have we ever in future years seen suits of armor in the X-Mansion? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of many reasons not to have suits of armor with halberds sitting around in the X-Mansion is if you've got a magnetic villain who can attack you with them. Um, not good. Not good interior design choices. And then uh, when they are being medically examined, uh, the X-Men, after their battle, the doctor who is attending to Cyclops is very, very insistent that he needs to check his eyes. He's like, dude, I really, really can't do that. And so he finally uh, shows a little bit of an example of what happens if you uncover his eyes. And the doctor says, good heavens, you mean you cannot control the destructive force of your eyes? You have to keep them shielded all the time? I'm afraid that's it, Doc. It would be your life to try to remove my visor. And that's something they always go back and forth on because when he's been using his power beam a lot, he's often like, oh, I'm exhausted from using my power beam. It's like, I thought your power beam was just always going. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they go back and forth on that in some ways. (laughs) And uh, when Cyclops is fighting the as yet unrevealed Magneto at one point, he's he's saying to himself, someone's playing a cat and mouse game with us. In any game like that, it's Cyclops who turns into the cat, into a power blasting tiger. Yes. (laughs) that's those are all words that are in the english language (laughs) i'm not sure they fit together in that order i was also i was struck by how much of the stuff that magneto does to uh to them in the corridors of the x mansion don't seem to have anything to do with metal there seems to be a lot of glass and other stuff like that that ends up being it's like he had time to build trap bulletproof glass walls and stuff. It, it just yeah, I, I would like to have seen this look a lot more Magneto specific. Yes. And then when uh, the Beast and Marvel Girl uh, leave the hospital, the Beast just jumps out of the window. You know, she's like, hey, we're, we're, we're up in the air. What are you doing? And he says, naturally, we're only three stories up. Such a leap is a mere bagatelle to the Beast. And one thing I forgot to mention last episode is that uh, Kang refers to something as a uh, I think he refers to sending the Avengers back to their time as a mere bagatelle, which, you know, I looked up. It's an obscure thing for like, you know, oh, it's very easy. But uh, it just seems like such a weird word to show up. I, I, it sounds better coming out of the beast coming from Kang. It was a little bit odd. But then Marvel Girl uses her telekinesis to lower herself down. And the thing is, Hank has to remind her says, you have your telekinesis. She says, of course, I forgot. I can float (laughs) myself down gently by means of my power of levitation. It's like, uh, you're in the danger room all the time. You're not going to (laughs) forget any of this stuff. Yeah, and then apparently Beast and Marvel Girl run or leap or levitate all the way from where they were at that hospital to the X-Mansion. Yes. I thought that hospital was in New York City. Maybe it was in the suburb somewhere nearby Westchester. I don't know. But one way or the other. I assumed they had just hopped in the car. But no, it actually yeah. says, finally, after a spectacular succession of running, leaping, climbing, and teleporting, teleporting, with mile-consuming gymnastic skill, the two marvelous mutants reached their goal. So yeah, yeah teleporting would- presumably means telekinesis using. 
Yeah, they, they would sometimes uh, use those words interchangeably in the early days. Yeah. You know, uh, there is some fun stuff in this issue, certainly. Uh, the whole, you know, keeping Magneto secret thing and having him do all these things that aren't, in my mind at least, very Magneto-ish is, I find, kind of annoying. Uh, a lot of those things that are just stretching credulity about, like, you know, oh, we can't let on that we all know each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes. even even as like an eight-year-old kid i think i would have been like come on <laughs> especially they're named the x-men they are named after him they are named <laughs> Xavier's men the x-men right like, why do people think they're called x-men i guess he has said he didn't name them after himself and they're named because they have extra power but come yes. on man you name them after yourself <laughs> they are Xavier's men indeed all right so I guess this is the wrap up to this episode. Yes. Yeah, this has been an interesting mix of books. Certainly the Amazing Spider-Man was quite amazing. As we said, it's probably the pinnacle of the book until we get, you know, the pin- some, by some people's records, it would be the pinnacle of the book ever. Uh, certainly the pinnacle of the book until John Romita uh, arrives and really starts hitting his stride. But that was a wonderful thing. Daredevil was crazy. Journey into Mystery was fun. Tales to Astonish was mixed. And uh, Uncanny X-Men also was a little bit mixed. All right. Well, Steve, thanks for coming out. This was fun. Uh, We're about to record another episode, but we will say goodbye to our listeners right now. Goodbye. Goodbye. And uh, then we will do a a Kang time travel thing. And then, you know, moments later, after a week. Yes. (laughs) All right. Take care, folks. Stay safe out there. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.